Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is David Sanderson. I'm not normally up here. I'm normally back there. Uh, normally you get to hear my mediocre drumming, and today you get my mediocre preaching. So uh, let's, uh, let's hope it goes well. Like, like, uh, like Ben said, uh, I've been here for about a year and a half. I moved out here for a job at Deer. Um, and since then, I've been in the North Park MC. Uh, that's the one with all the preachers. Uh, you got Alex, you got Rob, you got me. I don't know where the other MCs are that are making preachers, but I think they should step up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm a part of the North Park MC. Um, and recently, we finished going through uh, the Story Formed Way, which is a curriculum that a lot of the MCs go through. Missional Community, that's what MC stands for. Um, if you're in an MC, you've probably been through it you start going through the story of the Bible. You go from the beginning to end, you see God's story, you see the uh, creation, uh, fall, redemption, restoration pattern through the Bible. And then once you're done going through that, you start to go through individual stories in your MC. You talk to, uh, you know, each person kind of goes through their life story. Um, and it's a terrifying experience for those of you that have done it the first time. I'm sure you guys were not super excited to get up there and spill your beans in front of everybody. Uh, but it's a really powerful experience because we're able to work through a lot of the demons that people have gone through in their life, a lot of hard times. We're able to work through that with them, speak the gospel into it, challenge them. And uh, God uses it in some really cool ways. So my MC recently finished going through that. 
And I noticed a pattern as we were going through that, that everyone at some point in their life kind of developed this thesis statement for what the good life is. And for a lot of people, they developed a very specific image of what that good life was going to be for them. You know, for some people, they wanted to be, you know, a nurse on a pediatric floor by the time they're 24. Like, it was a very specific image of what they wanted. Uh, for others, it was more general. Uh, they wanted to live an exciting life. They didn't want to stuck. They didn't want to get stuck in Davenport, Iowa. Or they, you know, wanted to live in a big city someday. They had this exciting image of what their life was going to be. For me, I knew when I was in seventh grade that I wanted to be an engineer. It was planned out from the beginning. I was sitting in math class, found out that I was really good at algebra, and uh, looked on the wall, and there's one of those motivational posters that are really lame. And it had a graph of, uh, you know, careers that use math and how much money they make. And so I went to the top. I said, okay, a lot of money, a lot of math, let's go. And so I knew right there, there you go, engineer. And that happened to work out for me. But for a lot of people, it doesn't work out. We all kind of develop this image of what the good life is going to be. And sometimes we get frustrated when it doesn't turn out that way. That kind of ended up being the pattern in our MC. And so I noticed this pattern, I picked up on it, and I didn't know why. And I'm an engineer, I like to know why. So I started to think through, why is it that all of us grew up different backgrounds, different cultures, yet we all kind of came to the same thing of developing some sort of image of what the good life was? So this is what I landed on. Our culture defines us by success, wealth, looks, experiences, you know, drive, energy, all of these physical things, achievements that we, that we have. And so we live in that culture, that mindset seeps into us as we grow up, and so we develop a path for our life that would be the good life that gets us those things. Achievement, wealth, looks. I mean, you don't have to go far to see that in our culture. You got TMZ, Hollywood. It's, it's not a point that I feel like I have to make. We all realize that. So we start to evaluate others that way, just like our culture does. And then we also start to evaluate ourselves that way. We develop this gold standard life of what the good life is. And then every once in a while, we pull that out and check it versus our life. And oftentimes, we're disappointed. It doesn't match what our life looks like. We get angry when we're single and 30. We feel lonely because we don't have friends or as many friends as we used to have or as many friends as other people. We, we get depressed that we feel like we're in a dead-end job. We, we start to feel insecure, feel like our life doesn't matter or have any meaning because our life doesn't match that gold standard that we painted when we were a kid. And so I, I'm excited to preach this psalm because I think this psalm points straight to that. Asaph is a, a prophet. He's a psalmist. Uh, and in the Old Testament, you, you know, thousands of years ago, and he had the exact same mindset. He had an image of his life, what he thought he wanted the good life to be, and he's looking at his life and it doesn't match. So he's stuck in that same cycle of thought. This psalm shows us that we're not alone. And, it sh and Asaph, going through this thought process, God snaps him out of it and uh, flips upside down what he thinks the good life is. So I'm excited to preach this psalm, Psalm 73. It's a long one. Thank you, reader, for reading that. Uh, we got through it. Um, but go ahead and get your Bibles out. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we can jump right into it. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, uh, God, we got our work cut out for us this morning. Um, this psalm, it has something that we all need. Father, we all get stuck in that cycle. And so I pray that uh, you would use me this morning, uh, that, that I would be a coherent, speak uh, well, God, that I wouldn't uh, distract from what your word has to say that I wouldn't add to it either. Uh, Father, I pray that this psalm uh, would be powerful this morning and that your spirit would work uh, here this morning. Father, we love you and pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 73, start at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is going to tell a story of a time when he saw this group of people, the wicked, he saw their prosperity and he was envious of them. It's pretty simple. That first verse, though, is kind of a key verse for the entire psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Let's remember that as we move through the psalm. So, but, pause. He says that at the beginning. It's kind of an author's note for the psalm because he's going to tell of a time when he didn't think that God was good. So that's why it's really significant. He starts it and he ends the psalm with these bookends of truly God is good. He wants you to the reader to know that despite what he went through, despite the you know, lack of thought that he had, the, the wrong thought that he had that God isn't good, God is good. And oftentimes we're like that too. We, we know something about God, but there's a disconnect with the way that we see reality, what we know of God, the theological truths and the experiences that we have. We have this disconnect and Asaph has it here too. So let's keep reading. Let's see how he kind of lays out this story. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. These are the wicked people. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So these people are healthy. They're, they're fat and sleek. They don't have to worry about food. That means they have some sort of money. They aren't in trouble as others are. They're not stricken. That means they have some sort of status or power or position. So these people are, you know, today's Hollywood movie stars, NFL athletes. These people have a lot of money. They have the means to get anything they want in the good life. And Asaph sees their life, and this is what he's holding up on a pedestal. This is what he's, he's looking at them, and he says, that is the good life. And he's envious of it. So he describes their physical characteristics, verse 4 and 5. Now in verses 6 through 9, he's going to describe the attitude of these people. So he says, therefore, pride is their necklace. It's the first thing that you notice about them. Their physical circumstances, their prosperity has made them so arrogant and prideful that it's the first thing you notice about them. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, they are so caught up in themselves, they can't see past their own wants and desires to the needs of other people. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They see the world and other people as a mechanism for their own gain. They're oppressive. And verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth because who is God when you control every aspect of their life? These people have power, status, money. They have what Asaph thinks is the good life. And so they think very little of God because, you know, God doesn't fit in the equation. They've been able to get everything they want of themselves. They don't need God. So it's easy to think that these people, the wicked that Asaph is describing, are just today's, you know, billionaires who make money using sweatshops in India and uh, child labor. These aren't us today. Uh, but I think it's important to realize that although we don't have what these people have, I think we have the same hearts and motivations. We all want the life that these people have. We, we might not want to be arrogant and oppressive, but we want that life where we don't have to worry about our bills. We don't want to worry about our next uh, paycheck coming in at the right time. We don't want to worry about making that next student loan payment. We all have that same desire. And for many of us, it's our only hope in life that one day we'll get to the point where we will be financially free and be able to live the life that these people live. We want to get to that next, next rung on the ladder at work. We want to have that status, that position, that money. We want that good life. It's the same image. So we're the same as these people, ultimately. We just haven't got there yet. 
So it's important for us to realize these people aren't some foreign group. This is a lot of times us. We have that same mentality. So let's keep reading. Back, back to Asaph. Verse 10, therefore his people, these are God's people, the people of Israel, turn back to them, the wicked, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So this group of people, the wicked, they're oppressive and arrogant. And we can kind of take from the verse or the passage that they're oppressive to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel are being oppressed. And they go to their prophet and they say, why isn't God punishing these people? Why is he blessing them? Why do they have this prosperity when they're doing these wicked things? It's important context to remember the Mosaic Covenant, which is a covenant that God made with Israel, with Moses at the Mount, at Mount Sinai where Israel made this promise that uh, they would follow the covenant or else there would be blessings and curses. So it was, it was highly based on obedience. If they followed the covenant, they would be blessed. They would have you know, a lot of crops. They would win their wars. They would take over land. Uh, things would go well for them. But if they didn't obey the covenant, if they married outside of Israel, if they didn't you know, do what God wanted them to do, uh, they would be invaded. They would be taken off into slavery. They would have famines, and this is a pattern you see in the Old Testament of blessings and curses. And so this is so ingrained into the people of Israel that when they see this group of wicked people who deserve the curses but are getting the blessings, they don't know what to think. They begin to question who God is at his core, whether or not he is just, whether or not he's good, whether or not he even sees what's happening. Because these people deserve the curses, but they're getting the blessings. And so they go to Asaph, their prophet, for an answer. Now, it's important for us to pause here and know that it's okay for us to be frustrated, not understand what God is doing like the people of Israel. You know, I think this happens all the time in life. We don't know what God's doing. We go through some time of suffering, and we don't know why God is doing what he's doing. But we see a pattern in the Bible of people expressing that frustration. This isn't wrong. So like in Psalm 35, David says, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? In Psalm 42, he says, Oh God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then Job really takes it home. Job 3, verse 23 through 26, he says, Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties. I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest. Only troubles come. Job is saying, God, why did you give me life if this is what it was going to be like? If my life is going to be this misery, why am I alive? It would have been better if you had never created me. And he's saying that to God. We see a pattern in the Bible of people who are frustrated with their life and questioning what God is doing. It's okay to do that. I think it's something that we are often afraid to do. We feel like some minor league Christian because we're not frolicking through misery. Don't feel that way. Cry out to God. It's okay to question what he's doing. So those are all prayers. Don't feel ashamed of your doubts, your frustrations, what, what God's doing in your life. We don't always know. So let's see. They come to Asaph. They're being oppressed. They're wondering why these people are being blessed. They come to Asaph. Let's see how he responds. Verse 12. So he says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I would have said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So here we see Asaph explaining his envy. He lays it all out on the table. He shows us his heart. He, in his mind, is comparing the circumstances of these wicked people 
at ease and in riches with his circumstances of being stricken and rebuked. Those are not the same, right? And so Asaph sees this, is frustrated, and then it's driven home even more when he remembers, wait, all day long I'm at the temple facilitating the worship of God. I'm, I'm there helping the people of Israel follow the covenant, doing sacrifices, slaving away in the temple, and yet God's giving what I want to these people that, you know, put their nose up at God. They think nothing of him. And so he's frustrated because he doesn't think that it's worth it. He's considering giving up being a prophet to go and chase after the things that he wants. He's saying that God is holding back the good things of life from him. That God is standing in the way of Asaph living a good and meaningful life. How often have we felt this way? I I know that I have. Many of us probably feel that way right now. We all know people like this group of wicked people. They have that 10,000 square foot solid brick house. They have the, the boat out on the lake. They've got the jet skis. They've got everything that they want in life. And yet they think nothing of God. They're filled with their pride. They have the I went and grabbed it mentality. We think about these people in our lives and we compare them to ourselves. And if we're honest, we get jealous and frustrated that their lives look more like our dreams than ours do. That image that we painted when we were a kid of what the good life is, we see other people that are doing everything wrong, and they have it. We've done everything right. We think we deserve it. And yet, God gives us something else. Do you remember the first time that you realized that life wasn't going to be what you thought it was? I think it's something that we come back to over time. I'm only 24, but that's happened to me a few times. I think it's going to happen many, many more. We have plans for what our life is going to be. That image that we painted when we were a kid, we're chasing after it. We keep reaching out for the things of life to satisfy us. We have this plan to get to where we want to go, and yet things change. You don't get the job that you thought you were going to get coming out of college. That girl that you thought you were going to marry, she leaves you. Your husband walks out. You have a miscarriage. You miss that sale. Life changes. I don't know if you know that, (laughs) but I'm assuming you do. We've all been through that. And those things happen, and we begin to question God's goodness because we think that the life that we had planned is the ultimate good for us. We think that the life that God has planned for us is less than what we had planned. And so we begin to question whether or not God is truly good, if he even loves us, if he cares about us. We think that God's holding out on us, that there's a better life out there that he does not want us to have. We think that things would be better, I would be better, if it had gone according to my plan. And that's where Asaph is. He he doesn't see God as good. He sees God as holding out on him, holding back the sweet stuff of life, and yet giving it to these wicked people. So Asaph is approached by the Israelites, asking him why God isn't punishing these wicked people that he envies. He wants that life. He's considering giving up being a prophet to go do that. And Then he's asked, well, why isn't God killing them, punishing them, cursing them? So he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't know what to say. Verse 15, he says, if I would have spoken my mind, if I would have said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So again, there's that disconnect. He knows that what he's feeling is wrong. He knows that his responsibility as a prophet is to not say what he's feeling. And so he seeks out resolution. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary 
of the Lord, of sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So Asaph, trying to understand the situation, trying to understand his own feelings, and at the same time comfort the people of Israel, is completely overwhelmed. There's a, there's a sermon sitting right here about why we go to church. Every week, we're confronted with bills, work, kids, relationships, politics, the circumstances of life. And then piled on top of that, we have spiritual frustrations, depression, anxiety, doubts, worries. And then the cherry on top of all that, we have you know, obligations to our families, to our communities, to our church, to our jobs. We get sucked. And the entire time, life is telling us that the things that are going to satisfy us are out there, and we have to go grab them. You know, no one cares about your career more than you do. I hear that all the time at work. It's the go get it, the good life is out there, go grab it mentality. We get sucked into that consumeristic, hedonistic mindset of our culture. It says that that's the answer to the frustrations of life. But we go to church every week to be reminded that God is the answer to those frustrations of life. That in him we find the things that are satisfying, not in the world. That hedonistic mindset that the culture pushes on us is flipped on its head when we come to church. So like I said, there's a whole other sermon, but Asaph does this exact thing. He's slipped into that mindset and then he goes to the temple of the Lord and God smacks him upside the head and flips his perspective around. So let's read verse 18 through 20. So he goes to the temple. God shows him the end of the wicked. Verse 18 through 20. But when I thought, or sorry, 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So God is calling out Asaph's bluff here. Asaph earlier in the passage is saying, I think it's worth it for me to be that instead of a prophet. I'm going to give up my life lived after God, serving the people of Israel, to go be one of these people to chase after that good life. And God is showing him, okay, let's push that to its end. Chase after that, what happens? Let's push that all the way to the end, into eternity. What is there? What's, what's the end of it? God shows him that the end of that life is vanity. It's, very, it's a lot like Ecclesiastes. That this life chasing after satisfaction here on earth, at the end, is nothing. It falls away. It's swept away. It's destroyed in a moment. So he calls out Asaph's bluff, that he shows him that that life is not as satisfying as he thought it was. And he also answers the concerns of the people of Israel. Israel was coming to God. God, why aren't you punishing these people? You're blessing them. And God doesn't say, don't worry, guys, I'm going to stop them from persecuting you. He doesn't say, you know, just give it a couple months and you won't be suffering anymore. His answer to their frustrations is, in eternity, these people will get justice. That I will be just in eternity, just, just wait. And so two things happen here when Asaph enters the temple. Uh, one, he gains what I want to call an eternal perspective. And two, he realizes that his heart is a lot like the wicked. So let's, let's step into one here. So one, God shows Asaph an eternal perspective. What do I mean by eternal perspective? So eternal perspective is accurately perceiving or identifying the eternal and the temporal, and then acting and thinking in light of those two classifications. So there, there are two types of things, temporal things and eternal things. Temporal things are just that. They're temporary. They're earthly. They're things that affect here and now. And then the eternal things are those that affect eternity, those that matter in eternity. 
Both of these things have value. I don't want to discount temporal things. They both matter. They both affect the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. But they don't have the same meaning, significance. I think there's a different in, difference in magnitude or scale. So for an example, if you were to walk out of here today and go work out, and tomorrow morning your arms are really sore, temporal. You know that's going to go away. It's, you just got to make it through the day. It's not going to be there tomorrow. Well, the second day is normally the worst. But a couple days later, you'll be all right. But it's going to affect the way you live your life. It's not meaningless. You're not going to be lifting up heavy things. You're not going to be able to straighten your arm out all the way. It's going to hurt really bad. It's, but it is temporal. Eternal would be like walking down, going down to the parking lot, falling down those stairs. You break your arm. You can't just wait that out. You got to go to the doctor. That pain isn't going away. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Or the difference between a craving and actually being hungry for a meal. A craving, you can wait it out. It'll pass. But being hungry for a meal, you're just going to starve to death if you don't eat. So we, we make these value calculations between eternal and temporal all the time. This is just on a different scale. When God breaks into Asaph's life and shows him the eternal perspective of the life that he was chasing after, it's much more significant than breaking your arm. It affects everything that Asaph values. And so God shows him this eternal perspective, and Asaph learns the eternal perspective through the example of the wicked. He sees that the life that they were chasing after is, is worthless. And he understands that, that things that are eternal and things that are temporal are what he should be living for here and now. I, I don't want to discount that temporal things can be extremely significant in your life. I mean, temporal suffering can be really awful and intense. I've been, I've been through some of it myself. But I think uh, the New Testament actually gives us a really good example of eternal perspective in light of suffering here on earth. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, the early church is going through uh, persecution, and we see uh, Paul talk about having an eternal perspective. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is saying that this suffering here and now, which is church being persecuted, people being arrested and killed, that's light and momentary affliction that's preparing them for an eternal weight of glory. So we see a New Testament example of having eternal perspective. That suffering matters. But when you have an eternal perspective, looking at eternity, you see that it's light and momentary. And the weight of glory that they're building up for themselves in, in the church is far beyond that, more valuable. So Asaph learns this eternal perspective through the wicked. He sees that all, all that's left of what they're living for is judgment in their evil hearts. And this really gives Asaph a wake-up call because he had envied them. So the second thing that happens when he's in the church or when he goes to God, the second thing that changes in him is that he realizes that he's just like those wicked people. So Asaph realized, remember go back to what he said in verse 13, that everything that he'd been living for, he said was vanity because his life didn't look the way that he wanted. He considered giving up his life as a prophet to chase after the things that they had. And now God shows him that those things are worth nothing. And so he realizes that 
his mindset was sinful. He realizes that it was um, against God, that he was going to give up God to chase after created temporal things that were going to fade away. He realizes how off his mindset was. So you, you and I are just like this. We compare our lives to others all the time. We envy the physical blessings that other people have. Our lives don't go the way we want them, and ultimately we think that God is not good, and we accuse him of holding out on us. I mean, think about, think about yourself. When was the last time that you confessed that to anybody or you repented of questioning God's goodness? We all think that God's holding out on us. When was the last time that you admitted that? Because God is not holding out on you. God meticulously guided history to put Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for your sins. He chased you down. He opened up your mind to the gospel. He adopted you as a son or a daughter. He put the Holy Spirit in you to comfort and to guide you. He's guarding you until the day that he returns and takes you to eternity. He's made a place for you in heaven and here on earth in the church where you matter and have significance and purpose. God isn't holding out on you. He's gone all out for you. We need to see that. We need to see that our questioning God and seeing that he is thinking that he's holding out on us is, is misguided. It's a sinful mindset. It's brutish and ignorant. And Asaph realizes that in verses 18 through 20, sorry, 21 through 22. Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He realizes that his attitude towards God was way off that he had not seen all of the things that God had done for him in eternity. And he was so focused on the temporal things here and now that he questioned whether or not God was good, but he didn't see that he had everything in eternity, that he was supremely blessed in eternity, that the life that he was living, that God was guiding him on, was for his ultimate good when you account for the eternal things. Asaph was only thinking about the temporal. And so he realizes the, as like, like he was a beast. He was living in light of these passions, not in light of what God had done. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Nevertheless, that, that verse there became one of my favorite verses while I was studying this passage, because Asaph just admitted that he was like a beast, like a farm animal in the field, covered in poop and dirt and bugs and sweat, out in a field. He's a cow. And yet God, nevertheless, is going to draw near to him, walk with him, hand in hand, through life. That God is going to go out of his way to approach this smelly animal that he should naturally walk away from. God shows his love for Asaph and his goodness towards Asaph in the fact that he comes near. God wants to be with him in eternity. He's welcoming him in to eternity. This beast, I mean, we need to sit on that picture. Think about your own sin. You know your sin better than anybody else except for God. God knows every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. He knows all of your character flaws. He knows the way that you manipulate people, the perversions of your mind, your bad habits, your failures, your guilt, your shame, all of it. He knows every single thing about you. He knows the things that scare other people away, the things that you don't like about yourself. And yet, he draws near, nevertheless. 
This is an amazing picture, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense at all. The first verse in this chapter, God says, truly God is good to Israel. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the only people that deserve the goodness of God are the people that are pure in heart. But we've seen through this passage that the wicked aren't pure in heart. Asaph isn't pure in heart. You and I aren't pure in heart. So why is it that Asaph, who doesn't deserve the goodness of God, he deserves to be set in slippery places. He deserves to be washed away in a moment, swept away by terrors. Why is it that he gets such a different treatment from God? It doesn't make sense that these two people have the same heart but different reactions from God. So why isn't Asaph made to fall to ruin? Because someone else who was pure in heart was set in slippery places for Asaph. Someone else was destroyed in a moment, forsaken by the Father in Asaph's place. Jesus Christ, the only one who ever had a pure heart, the only one who actually deserved the goodness of God, and yet all his life he saw the wicked prosper. He walked with people who were oppressed and poor and suffering, and yet saw the rich, the corrupt, the powerful, receive all the blessings. And yet, unlike Asaph, he never questioned the goodness of God. He never started searching out satisfaction in the things of this world. He sat in that suffering, content with the eternity and relationship with God that he had. Jesus did what Asaph and you and I fail to do every day. He earned the goodness of God by his pure heart. And yet, nevertheless, he laid down his life to save us, to take our place, to take his pure heart and give it to us so that we could sit in his place of honor. So that we dirty beasts like Asaph could enjoy the goodness of God that he deserved. We deserve the judgment that the wicked received because of our betrayal. And yet, Jesus dies in our place to give us that seat of honor. He takes our shame, we take his honor. And so Asaph realizes this. He bursts into doxology, and we can see through his psalm that he writes here, this song at the end, that he himself has changed in two ways. One, he's cha- what he considers good has shifted. And two, that his hope has changed. So one, what he sees as good has shifted. Verses, verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Asaph can't say this if he thinks that the good life is things here and now. And this this statement is a complete turnaround. It's repentance from what he said earlier in the passage. He spent the first half of the, the chapter like just idolizing the things that he wanted more than God. There were lots of things here on earth that he wanted more than God. And now he's saying, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's a, that's a powerful shift, and it only happened because he realizes the weight of eternity. He sees what God has done for him in eternity, compares it to the things that are here and now and what they can do for him in eternity, and there's nothing. So therefore, he's able to say that nothing on earth matters besides God. I think that's a verse that a lot of people memorize. I know I memorized it in like Awana when I was a kid, but I never believed it. You'd hear that verse, you'd hear people say and be like, yeah, right, nothing on earth, really? Come on. But Asaph here, he means it because he's realized in this moment the weight of what God has done for him in eternity. And he sees the vanity in the things that he was idolizing earlier. 
So that's one. His, what, he's, what he views as good has shifted. And then two, his hope has changed entirely. Verse 26. Whom have I? Or 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail. He knows himself and he knows that he's likely to return to that old mentality. He's likely to be like a beast toward God again. But his trust is in God. So even in his sin, God walks with him. God draws near. So Asaph's hope is shifted. His, it's no longer in his own strength and in himself, but it's in God. For, for us today, we can look back on the life of Jesus, and we can see that he perfectly fulfilled the law, that he lived that perfect life and had a pure heart, that he earned the goodness of God for us, so that when we're in our sin, we can say that Jesus is our strength, that our heart, that our strength is his heart that he earned. So even in our sin, we can have confidence in the gospel. The gospel shows us that we have no hope in, in ourselves, but only in Christ can we have a hope that's secure. It's like that song we just said, our living hope. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all of your works. This last section of the psalm serves as a, a recap of the psalm, and Asaph gives a, a warning and an invitation. In verse 27, Asaph gives a warning to those who are far from God that left on their current course, they will perish. It's the lesson that he's learned from this trial. He was tempted to chase after the things of this world. He thought that they would be better than God. He learned his lesson. He learned that those things are going to fail him, but that God is going to preserve him. He's learned that lesson, and he's giving the warning to those that are still on that course. He left that camp, and now it is good for him to be near to God. And so he gives a warning to those that are still on that path. And then he gives an invitation. Asaph's testimony of leaving that and going towards uh, seeing God is good and being near to God is good. He says that he's made God his refuge, that he might tell of all of his works. He's inviting people to experience the goodness of God in the same way that he did. And so the way I see it this morning, there are two groups of people here today. There, there are those of you who are not in Christ and you're chasing after those things in the world. And for many of you, they're your only motivation. They're your only hope. Like earlier, when I said that your hope is that one day you'll be financially secure, that you'll have that status, and your entire life is around that and aiming towards that. It's your only hope. It's your only motivation. Asaph's warning to you is that that's going to fail. I mean, that's what we've been talking about here for the last months in Ecclesiastes. The things of this world, they add up to vanity. In eternity, in the final calculation, there's nothing there. So Asaph's warning to you is to turn from that, to put your hope in Christ, to put your faith in Christ and have an eternal hope. Have a life of meaning and value that has something in eternity when it's all done. Then there are those of us who are in Christ, and yet we chase after the pleasures of this world all the time. We flip back and forth between seeing God is good and seeing that car is good or that house. Asaph's warning to us is the same and his invitation is the same. Remember the gospel. Remember the goodness of God to you in eternity that your hand is full. You don't have to keep reaching for things to satisfy you. 
remember the feeling of walking hand in hand with God and the, the effect of your faith. God has God displayed his goodness towards sinners by offering Jesus to take our place. And that's what we need to remember to shift us out of that cycle of thought that we all get caught in. In a moment, we're going to eat and drink a physical reminder of God's goodness towards us. Uh, but before we do that, I, I pray that you would search your heart. Find those places that you're thinking are more important than God, that you value more than God. Find those things in your heart that you would say that it's vanity for me to worship God if it holds me back from that. I think we all need to repent and pray for those things. If you feel convicted, pray that God would show you his goodness again. Show you his goodness in eternity and the value of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would show us your goodness. So often we, we drift away. We think that you're not good because you don't give us what we want. Or you're not good because you've got a plan for our life that we didn't plan. Father, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would not just know that you're working all things out for our good, but Father, that we would trust that, that it, we would want that for you to direct our life in the way that you want it, not in the way that we want it. Father, shift what we view as good to what you view as good. Father, that we would serve you well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.